Integration Advocates Network podcast brought to you by Justicia Lab. My name is Brittany Long, and I am the Outreach Specialist at Immigration Advocates Network. Today, I'll be interviewing Spojmi Nasiri and Catherine Wildheisen. Spojmi Nasiri is the Principal Attorney at the Law Office of Spojmi Nasiri PC. She is a member of the California State Bar and has been practicing immigration law for over 10 years. In addition to her legal practice, she is actively involved in various immigrant rights organizations, including the American Immigration Lawyers Association, and has volunteered her expertise to provide services to the immigrant community. Recently, in collaboration with AILA, Human Rights First, and the International Human Rights Clinic, she published Best Practices and Resources for Representing Operation Allies, Welcome Parolees, and Afghan Nationals. Catherine is the program coordinator at the Afghan Legal Clinic with the Advocates for Human Rights, Refugee and Immigrant Program. In this role, she oversees the day-to-day -day operations of the clinic that is serving the 1,400 Afghan evacuees that were resettled in Minnesota and North Dakota. They have both graciously agreed to come on the podcast and talk about the issues Afghan nationals are currently facing in the asylum process. Welcome, Spojmi and Catherine. Thank you both for being here. Thank you so much for having us. Yes, thank you so much. To start off, could you give us a brief overview of who you are and what you do? Um, my name is Sposhmi, and I am a first-generation uh, immigrant uh, from Afghanistan. I came here in the early 1980s as a result of the Soviet war. I grew up here in the Bay Area. Um, as a young child, I came to the U.S. around age seven. Uh, with my father and siblings, and uh, immigration is very dear and near to me. I uh, was separated from my mom for about five years, six, five, six years uh, before I was reunited with her. Um, after uh, going to law school, I opened up my own law practice, and in the last several years, I've been really involved with the Afghan uh, uh, evacuation and all of the issues that it entails nationwide. And I have my practice here in Pleasanton, California. And my name is Catherine Baldheisen. Again, I'm the program coordinator with the Afghan Legal Clinic at the Advocates for Human Rights based in Minneapolis, Minnesota. My previous experience in immigration is mostly doing detained work with Care Coalition out in Washington, D.C., and recently started with the Advocates back in January of 2022. Um, my role is primarily to help get clients connected from point A to point B through um, legal services, through our pro bono volunteers and other providers in the area. We assist on a wide array of applications, including asylum primarily, but also the SIV process, work permits, and TPS. Thank you both for that. Now, Spojmi, as I mentioned earlier, you were part of a newly published resource um, labeled Best Practices and Resources for Representing Operation Allies, Welcome Parolees, and Afghan Nationals. Can you tell me more about this resource and its intentions? Um, yes, of course. So when uh, Kabul fell in August 2021, um, you know, I didn't have an end game, but I really wanted to to help Afghans in some ways. Um, so the seven or eight military bases are in the East Coast. Um, about once a month for about a week um, on my own initiative, I uh, went to different bases and there were attorneys from AILA and other attorneys from other organizations. And our aim was to provide um, legal services, meaning, um, you know, informing the fellow Afghans of what their status was as a parolee, 
um, a lot of them wanting to know, you know, what, what was going to happen to them and what they had to do and bring their families and all of that. And one of the issues that I saw when I went from base to base, from um, New Jersey to Wisconsin to New Mexico to Texas um, and on the various bases that uh, Afghans were housed in temporarily were the same legal issues coming up pertaining to uh, polygamy, child brides, um, documentation missing, um, you know, terrorism-related issues, uh, you know, the SIV cases issue that came up. And I thought to myself, since Afghans are being spread all across the country, as far as Hawaii and Texas, um, how were legal practitioners or others going to deal with these issues that they never run into? So from that, I thought about what I could do to create a document that would allow someone getting an Afghan case for the first time in the middle of Midwest and not knowing what they could turn to. So this was sort of a project that I envisioned and, and I was grateful with uh, my colleague, Hannah Pithia and I from USC, Professor Hannah Pithia, we worked together to create this document. It's a two part document. One is all the different issues that were coming up that we were seeing and then and it was a, a live living document meaning that up to the publication we had updates and we'll have to update it again in the next three months or so to have some help with it and then the second portion is the sample documentations whether it's the uh, documents from all the different organizations nonprofits like ira pius uh, vacina uh, hrf ala uh, private attorneys pars equality many organizations that were working on multiple dimensions of issues, we sought their permission to accumulate all these documents into one location that can be used as a reference. So that's where the drive came for this document and, and what the purpose of it was. It's truly an incredible resource. And one of the wonderful things about it is this resource also holds a glossary of definitions um, that many who might just be starting with working with Afghan clients would want to know about and want to know more about, and they can familiarize themselves with these terms. Some may know about this. Catherine, would you, would you kind of talk about the Afghan Adjustment Act, what it is and kind of what the hopes for it? Of course, yeah. So the Afghan Adjustment Act, or as we um, typically call it, the AAA, um, was a piece of legislation that would, and hopefully still will, create a way for many Afghans now in the United States to apply for permanent resident status. Um, unfortunately, most of the approximately, I think about 80,000 people who arrived in the wake of the U.S. withdrawal from Afghanistan were paroled into the country for two years with really no clear way to remain in the country permanently other than applying for asylum or the um, the long SIV process. So if passed, the um, Afghan Adjustment Act will allow um, and will follow previous responses to wartime allies by providing an opportunity for folks to apply for permanent residence allowing them to rebuild their lives in their new communities without fear of having to return to a war-toward country. It would also provide some with the possibility of reuniting with immediate family members. And again, it would just have created a much more straightforward process for individuals to apply for permanent residence. 
Unfortunately, Congress has failed multiple times to pass this legislation, but there's still opportunities to advocate for it as it is a life-saving piece of legislation that would have a tremendous impact on individuals here as well as the family that they've left behind. And so Catherine just touched on some of the data associated with Afghan asylum seekers. And recently, USCIS held a stakeholder meeting about that same data. Spushmi, could you tell us a little bit about those numbers and the challenges that those numbers represent? So some of the information relating to particularly um, asylum application, which is when most Afghans are eligible for um, as of uh, early April, um, there have been a, a, approximately, you know, 16,000 I-589s filed, uh, with 13,000 being principal applicants, and then uh, so far about 1,700 have been approved, and about 14,000 are still processing. So what that tells us is that even though there is congressional mandate to adjudicate the asylum applications within 150, or have an interview within 150 days and then continue the adjudication, we are not seeing that, you know, an estimated, the number that's been, I've seen float around is about 76,000 Afghans. A bulk of those are eligible for SIV, special immigrant visa. A lot of those individuals are having difficulty time getting the COM approval notices and then continuing their applications with uh, USCIS, USCIS to get the I-45. And then the asylum, a lot of individuals have not filed for asylum when they're not eligible for SIV. What these numbers tell us is that with the two-year parole lease coming up, the status coming up to expire in August or September of this year, um, because the fall of Kabul is August 2021, and most folk came in around August, September, their EAD cards are going to expire through the parolee status. So we're not seeing as much, you know, adjudication of these uh, applications as we would like to, and those have, you know, severe anxiety and stress for Afghans. The other bulk of it is many have not applied for asylum if that's the method of relief they're seeking, is that they don't have legal representation, they don't know how to process the applications, and there has been overwhelming backlog, you know, trying to get pro bono attorneys and, and, and nonprofit agencies to take on these cases. So that's what we're seeing at this moment. And what other types of challenges have you seen that these families and individuals are facing? Well, you know, one is the major is the legal, getting obtaining legal status. Second, as you know, all across the country with COVID. Um, and then the large Afghan families, you know, a lot of them have four to seven children. has been housing. Um, and then employment, if their benefits are running out, they need to find employment. Um, so, so those issues, I mean, all across the board, all across the nation, what I'm seeing is issues relating to, first and foremost, legal services, housing, adequate housing. Many are still, quite a few are still in temporary housing like hotels and motels. You know, they're not being able to speak English and finding the training to be able to find jobs that would be financially feasible to support their large families. And then just the dynamics of children, you know, adjusting to school. Um, mental health is a big, big part of the component of this distress that many fellow Afghans are, are going through. So those are some of them. They're one of the, some of the major issues. But I mean, of course, there's more issues. Could you touch a little bit on the misinformation that maybe some of them are receiving? 
Yes, in, in terms of misinformation, for example, you know, these are not attorneys, they're not legal professionals by any means. Uh, I recently saw a TikTok video where they were talking about some individual talking about mass deportation of Afghans when their two-year parolee status comes, uh, you know, September, August. Uh, and there's genuine fear, you know, I, I recall a couple months ago I was at a, a community gathering for newly arrived Afghans in the Bay Area and I got pulled aside by now five, six individuals and said, if Trump gets reelected and our status expires, are we going to be deported back to Afghanistan? So, you know, it's very distressing and, and very emotionally draining. So some of the rumors, particularly surrounding um, mass deportation. Uh, the other thing that I'm hearing is for those Afghans that were lucky enough to get paroled in, you know, they're eligible to many benefits. Um, they're adv ill advising their family members to come in through the southern border and seek asylum. And then some have gotten in. And, and as we know, they're not eligible for a lot of the federal and state benefits and on the brink of, you know, being on the streets and homeless. So the struggle to, to, to get some, you know, help from community churches, community members in, in, in that term because they're not eligible. So there's been mis, uh, misinformation and rumors around that. To combat that, myself along with Vecina in uh, JIRA, G-E-R-A, and Project Anar, uh, we were in the process of making three to four videos that are a couple of minutes long saying, you know, here's the process of what happens when somebody's, if your status expires and you haven't applied for asylum and you're put into removal proceedings, this is the process what happens. They are not going to put you on a plane and deport you back. So those are some of the rumors. Now, Catherine, at your clinic, what types of challenges are your clients facing before they come to you? What have you heard and what kind of information are they receiving that's misinformation? I would echo that here in, in Minnesota and in North Dakota. Um, very similar concerns regarding employment, um, work authorization expiring, access to affordable housing. Um, you know, we are in an economic recession. Um, and so with prices skyrocketing in terms of groceries and gas, transportation, being able to support family here is a big concern for many of our, our clients. Uh, many of their benefits may be expiring if they're receiving refugee cash assistance. Um, and all of these are compounding factors that add on to the stress that they are already dealing with. As we've alluded to, many of the clients that we're working with have left family back home. And so they're not only working to support themselves here, but also sending remittances back home um, to be able to support their loved ones. Um, this is an incredibly stressful um, situation for our, our clients and their families to be in. And unfortunately, um, resources are strapped. However, we're very fortunate to have wonderful community partners here in Minnesota that have really rallied together to be able to support the community. One organization in particular, Afghan Cultural Society, has done such a wonderful job supporting our clients on the social services side to help us be able to provide those holistic services. However, again, um, you know, all of our clients, um, Afghan and non-Afghan, you know, are facing a lot of challenges after they've come to the U.S. And we just are trying to do our part to help alleviate some of that stress when it comes to the legal side of things. However, it's, it's not perfect and, you know, never enough capacity, but we do our best to help as many people as possible. So for the volunteers or pro bono lawyers who might be working with your clients, what are some challenges that they might be facing 
in helping these types of cases? I think the biggest challenges is just being able to learn about a, a new community. Um, despite being at war in the Middle East for several decades, um, you'd be surprised by how little people know, myself included when I started this work, about ongoing conflicts over the last several years in Afghanistan before and after the U.S. occupation. And so really working with our volunteers to ensure that they have the knowledge about you know, the historical and political conflicts that have been ongoing so that they have the context they need to understand their client stories, to be able to pinpoint timelines and to provide that competent representation. In addition to that, the cultural competency. So learning, um, learning about another culture, um, ways to interact with both men and women, being aware of Ramadan and knowing that, that they shouldn't schedule meetings because it is Eid. Um, all of those things are um, new for some of our volunteers and we're doing our best to, to keep them up to speed so that they again can provide robust and uh, competent representation to our clients, keeping in mind all of the moving pieces that they have to deal with on a daily basis. Spojman, do you have anything to add to that? Yes, so one of the other challenges that I wanted to touch on, and I don't know if, if uh, Catherine, you're hearing it from, from your clients, is um, particularly in rural areas, the lack of support, cultural support, any type of support for children that are attending school. So the kids that are attending school, whether they're elementary, middle, and, and high school, um, some districts have done a wonderful job of integrating them. Some are very strapped for money uh, or services or not even aware they don't have that many immigrants. As we know, Afghans were placed all across the United States. And so in some rural areas, they haven't had anyone or experiences of accommodating. So we've seen a lot of mental distress, mental health issues for young students when they are in these school districts and they don't have the support system that they need, um, no resources to be able to support their academics in terms of like learning English and, and that sort. So I've heard quite a few stories. Uh, we had, for, for example, a young uh, gentleman in Michigan, uh, I'm sorry, in Missouri, uh, who was uh, found uh, to have hanged himself they were investigating whether they're a foul player or not, but the essence of it was that he had multiple times told his parents um, that he was being bullied at school and, and that he didn't feel fit in. So even in the Sacramento areas, we're seeing a lot of distress and great organizations like uh, Islamic, Islamic Network, uh, ING Islamic Network Group. We've teamed up with them to provide tutorials on, on the etiquettes of uh, being Muslim Ramadan not not eating uh, poor products. Many of these students, though, one of their main meal comes from school, but if they're not aware that the meat is halal or kosher, they won't eat it, so they leave. So so there's a lot of issues within, within the student population um, in many areas. Do either of you have any advice for volunteers or pro bono workers who are just starting off working with uh, these types of clients? I would say take the time to do your research, um, whether it's watching many of the wonderful recorded trainings from all of the organizations involved in this legal response effort. There's also a heartbreaking but very informative documentary that should be available on HBO that documents kind of what happened during the evacuation so that we can just understand the stress and trauma that our clients went through so that we can be able to provide that trauma-informed care and representation. I think 
doing what we can to do our due diligence to understand where our clients are coming from helps us be able to provide them with the best support that they need and be able to kind of come from a place of understanding and mutual respect so that, again, we are able to help them and walk alongside them in this process. I echo Catherine. Um, I think somebody new coming in can really be overwhelmed quite fast and their intentions may be in the right place, but I think making sure that you're culturally competent, one, to be able to interact with the males and the females, particularly if you're a male volunteer and you're working with females, the Muslim and the Afghan etiquette is you don't shake hands with men or if you see that the women are not looking at you, it's because they've been taught to gaze down. The language, languages, um, the, the main language is Pashto and Dari, know which language they speak. You know, some Dari, some Pashto speakers will, will know Dari. Most Dari speakers will not know Pashto. So knowing the linguistic challenges, the cultural backgrounds, and then particularly when you're working with the legal aspect of it, making sure that you are an individual fit for that, that be able to give that legal advice if you're not an attorney or a legal practitioner, work with someone who can give them that advice because if you give them ill information, uh, it has severe consequences down the line. Um, many, many Afghans are very desperate. You know, I, I would, for answers to how to get reunited with their families, I mean, and I can't speak for Catherine, but in the two weeks of the evacuation, you know, at nighttime I was up trying to get, you know, clients to go from one gate to another to try to get evacuated and during the day, dealing with the calls and, and people desperation to get their family members. Many, many families were separated. For example, when I went to one of the military bases, I recall a gentleman, you know, in his mid-50s grab a, a lanky young little girl and he tells me, what am I supposed to do with her? And I'm like, okay, uncle, what's going on? And he tells me that he managed to only get her out, but the rest of the children and the wife are still in Afghanistan. And so he was desperate to get reunited. And a lot of them were ill-informed by the soldiers that, oh, no, we're just going to evacuate you. Your family's going to be on the way. Well, many of these families, if not most of them, were two years into this, and they haven't been reunited. So a lot of these individuals will, will try to seek help from anyone and everybody that they can get a hold of to see how they can bring their family. And I think having a legal practitioner explain to them the process so that although it might not be good advice, you're giving them the advice that's correct and not misinforming them. So I think those are the things that I would advise. And, and like you said, um, there are a lot of resources that people can use to learn how to kind of get in familiar and equated with uh, with what the process is in helping Afghans in particular. Have you seen any unique challenges that come with working with either an unaccompanied minor or just children in general who are Afghan clients? I know, especially you, you kind of touched on some of the issues that they might be facing. Do you have, have you seen any others or Catherine, have you seen anything yeah, you know, I would say um, that we have seen a couple of unaccompanied um, Afghan minors that were resettled in our area, and one of my wonderful co-workers has been working with them. I think 
as we're seeing across the country, um, there are so many unaccompanied children here that are having to be able to navigate this process on their own. And that is um, a huge hurdle and an obstacle. And finding legal representation as a child is a, a big, big challenge um, that many adults don't even know how to navigate for themselves. I think the um, the biggest thing that we come against uh, up against when working with with children, I think, is figuring out um, how to be able to reunite them with their family, while also I think balancing what their um, best interest is in terms of their legal options, you know, and exploring all of those things um, to provide them with the best possible representation, and also managing, you know, working with children. Uh, obviously, their ability to um, engage in legal representation is different than adults, and balancing all of their unique needs that they have, um, the fact that they are in school, lack of access to transportation if they do not know how to drive or if they are not of age. But I think the, the biggest thing as we've talked about is this family reunification piece is such, such a burden on, um, on these families when there are very little answers about the timeline of when or if this will happen. And as Spojmi said, there's a lot of misinformation about how and when and if family could be reunited. And those are the hardest conversations that we have to have and are even harder when you're talking with children. Yeah, I echo Catherine. I think that the, the most distressing and the mental health capacity impacting is for these children is to be able to, you know, re, get you know reunified with their family members and then being able to continue with their life. And I think the challenges for them are much different than those students. Not only are they dealing with the mental distress of being separated from their family members, but then to navigate the system in some ways on their own and then continue if they're school-aged to, to go to school. Um, so that has had you know, a, a tremendous impact on their overall well-being. And, and I echo Catherine that the biggest, the hardest conversation, the biggest portion of discussion that I have with when I have consults is you know, the family reunification portion. And unfortunately, uh, with the government proposing different opportunities such as the humanitarian parole, which, you know, over 45,000 applications are pending and maybe a couple hundred were approved. Uh, the U.S. government collected almost 20, 20 to $21 million and those HP applications are not going. So many people were hoping if they left behind their spouses and children, they would be able to use. And then came along the family reunification program, which is, you know, limited to only certain people that can petition to that. And then the third one was the sponsorship that recently came out. People were asking about and these conversations that I have with, with uh, Afghan individuals regarding that sponsorship program is for at this phase, the refugees have already been pre-selected. We don't know who they are. They're just looking for families to sponsor them here. And supposedly the government said that they would come out with phase two to see what who can who's going to be eligible. So not only is it, you know, telling them the daunting information about, you know, long waits to be reunited with their families, but also every time a program, come, program comes out, they're hoping for something, but unfortunately there's not much. So those are the discussion, not only with the minors, but just others in general. And now, as we see the deadline for parole and TPS renewal looms, what are some of the challenges or issues that are arising? Catherine, do you want to go? Oh, sure. I think we have been seeing just a lot of panic about those expiration dates, even though they are, you know, about 
five, six months out for kind of the earliest arrivals, people are worried about what will happen next. Um, employers are starting to ask questions about their legal status and whether or not they'll be authorized to work once their parole expires. And so all of these factors and compounding, again, adding stress onto an already stressful situation, figuring out what they can do to extend or apply for new new work authorization and then figuring out how to be able to help people with that. Those are really big challenges that we're facing right now is just how to be able to help people apply for new work permits, ensure that there's continuation of work authorization and legal status, and also ensuring you know that those are the best options for people and figuring out how to allocate our, our resources and staffing in a efficient way, but that is also taking into consideration, again, the unique aspects of each person's case, their unique timeline, all of those things that we're providing really individualized care and attention to each case takes a lot of time. And so, you know, right now it's a lot of trying to alleviate that worry, trying to develop a plan and a strategy to assist. But as those deadlines start approaching, there again is is a lot of panic and Hopefully, you know, we will hear an announcement um, about re-parole or um, an extension of parole. But as we've seen, whether it was the Afghan Adjustment Act or as Sposhmi has mentioned, you know, uh, USCIS not keeping their, their promises in terms of how fast they will schedule interviews or adjudicate cases, we can't rely on that. And so as service providers, we do have to do everything we can to make sure that our clients are taken care of, that their best interests are met. And we do what is necessary to, again, ensure that they have legal status and continue working, which then impacts so many other aspects of their life outside of their legal case. So one of the things that I would add to to all of the various points Catherine made is that Afghans are assuming that it's going to be automatic reparole. We don't know what it's going to entail in terms of the process, but I don't foresee it being automatic. Uh, people will have to reapply. We'll have to wait for the process, and then there may be fees involved and then fee waivers. The biggest challenge will be is that, in my humble opinion, I've seen all this stuff, is that people will fall through the cracks and they won't renew their, if, if reparole is uh, initiated, and that is an option that I think a lot of people will fall um, and through the cracks and not file it. And for many reasons, one, lack of understanding and knowledge of the process, two, uh, access to legal service providers to be able to help them with that. So that's where you know all these nonprofit organizations that I listed earlier are doing a really good job of trying to be prepared for whatever is going to come out and translate those in Dari and Pashto and try to share that with the community, the wider community as much as we can. Many Afghan organizations are also in touch with these Afghans, so we'll have to do our due diligence to make sure that all of this information regarding the repurl possibly is shared with the community uh, so that they can uh, you know, do the repurl because when their EAD expires, that is gonna have consequences of their ability to work, earn a livelihood for their families, support their families. My fear is that, you know, are we going to be facing homelessness? Are we going to be facing other catastrophic situations for these individuals that are already in fragile um, situation, yet they may not be aware uh, that that their parole status has expired and they need to file for repurl. 
So those are some of the issues that I miss, that I foresee or anticipate. And what are some things that we in the immigration community can do to advocate? I think like never before, you know, we have seen such a large influx of refugees or you know, immigrants brought into the U.S. since Vietnam. Many of us are discovering new, whether it's an attorney, whether it's a caseworker, whether it's a social worker or mental health, trying to scramble as much as we can to provide the best uh, services or fulfill the needs of these immigrants as we can. And so I think that the community has done a wonderful job of trying to advocate. Um, keep in mind that we didn't have parolees, that the parolees were not eligible for benefits. That's something we had to fight for right at the onset, and they were eligible for all the benefits that they eventually got. So I think um, we continue that advocacy. And I really see a lot of collaboration amongst all the nonprofits, businesses, private attorneys, organizations to share any and all information with each other and continue to do that so that we can benefit the larger Afghan community. I know whenever there's one organization that comes up with some sort of like, for example, Know Your Rights presentation, all the other organizations share it so that others can benefit. So I think we can continue that advocacy on, on every level um, and that will help continue to, to support our fellow Afghans. I would echo that as well. I think this response effort is really paving the way for future efforts. Not that I wish that upon any anyone, but I think it really is strengthening the bonds of service providers across the country, both immigration and social services. Um, and I think is is an incredible, I think, effort to be a part of. I still think that there are ways to advocate on the local, state, and federal level. Um, you know, the Afghan Adjustment Act is still something that can be reintroduced and something that we can push our representatives to to support. Um, not only is it the right thing, but it would again just have life-saving benefits to individuals here and their family abroad. We really do need to support this community as well as all immigrant communities. And again, I think that the, um, the collaboration that we have seen is a testament to how things should operate. While not perfect, I think it is really setting the tone and really energizing in some ways, although this work is, um, you know, is taxing. It is really, again, a remarkable uh, effort to be involved in. Hopefully, you know, we can continue the momentum and advocate for change, whether that's re-parole or the Afghan Adjustment Act, and implement what we have learned um, in other communities as well. What resources have been helpful to either of you to continue doing the work that you're now doing? For me, I think the wonderful resources, um, and I don't want to miss any organizations, but just listing some like Vecina, HIAS, IRAP, LIRS, uh, PARS, AILA. Um, AILA has an Afghan, Afghan legal task force uh, providing information, updated information as it comes out. And then also some of the Afghan run organizations, uh, such as Project Anar, uh, you know, the information that they share, and also organizations uh, such as Afghan American Community Organization that are doing uh, presentations and information for the community in Darin Pashto to share that information. I think that we we do a wonderful job as a, a community to to have written material. Uh, I would love to see more of, of videos, Know Your Rights, and I know the capacity is limited. I myself speak Pashto and Dari, so I have the ability to 
if, if it's feasible time-wise to jump into a video, like I mentioned earlier, you know, the mass hysteria about deportation. And I thought that it was very important to address that or the issue of Southern border saying, you know, if someone's telling you to come in and you're going to get all these benefits in the U.S., that information is incorrect. Uh, it's very difficult. It's very dangerous, particularly for women and children. And so I think what I would like to see, if it's feasible, is more short videos that could be shared within the larger Afghan community and the networks that support these uh, these Afghan uh, parolees. I would, again, echo all of that. I don't want to leave anyone out, as Spojmi said, but Spojmi's resource that she helped develop is, is really a game changer, especially for people that are less familiar with, with immigration law. It is very comprehensive and something that we have been sharing with many of our pro bono volunteers. Again, there have been, as, as I said earlier, it has been really incredible to see the, the output and the uh, outcome of all the hard work of all of the players involved in this response effort. So there's so many wonderful materials. Again, uh, IRAP and Vecina, many of their training courses have been utilized by our volunteers as well. And I think um, by having all of these resources, it really does invite and encourage other people who where this may not be their normal pra uh, practice, um, you know, or area of practice. It is allowing them to step in and try something new and, you know, step up to be able to represent individuals, but do so in a way um, where they are, again, providing comprehensive legal services to um, to individuals. So um, again, so many wonderful things um, floating out there that get sent on the listservs. It's hard to kind of name name them all, but so many. <laughs> Do either of you have anything else you want to add? Maybe that I didn't ask. Anything you just want to put in addition to? Um, what I would say is that a lot of people are hesitant. A lot of our practitioners um, are hesitant to take on these Afghan cases even if they're not immigration uh, attorneys, but they're in other practice areas. Uh, what I would tell my fellow colleagues is, is that there's tremendous amount of resources available, whether you're work for a large firm, medium firm, solo practitioner, that are willing to take on these Afghan cases. Uh, there's tremendous amount of support. And I also wanted to mention um, the American Bar Association. They've provided wonderful toolkits for practitioners to use as a guide in helping them do these cases. And as time goes by, even if we get a re-parole, if the Afghans get re-paroled, we will continue to see the issue of lack of legal services. And so what I'm hoping for is that the re-parole will allow these Afghans sufficient enough time to go ahead and file their asylum cases. But the major issue is still that we're not going to all of a sudden, because we got re-parole, have all these legal service providers come out of the woodworks and say, okay, now I'm going to go ahead and help these Afghans. The legal representations challenges then it's always going to be there. So I would just say, I humbly request for those that are interested in helping Afghans and taking on asylum cases that don't be afraid. There's a tremendous amount of resources and support system that will guide you through these cases. And they're very rewarding, change lives. Yes, I would echo that. I think we are a country that I think kind of moves from one thing to the next so quickly. You know, we have had so many humanitarian crises, both um, internationally and, and here in, in our own country that I think um, unfortunately distract us and we move so quickly from one thing to the next. But there is such a tremendous need still, despite the fact that we are approaching two years since, um, since Kabul fell. 
And so again, I think this is a perfect time to do a call to action to anyone that has not yet stepped into this space, that there is room for you. Um, there are so many wonderful organizations across the country providing assistance, whether you know in your own community or um, or elsewhere, there's opportunities for in-person representation as well as remote. And so I just would encourage everyone to seek out their local immigration service providers and see how they can get plugged into taking on an Afghan asylum case, assisting with clinics, because there is so much work to be done and it does take a village. I, again, as Bojmi said, don't be afraid to step into this space. <laughs> we are welcoming, there's so many resources and I would just encourage people to, to look into their, their local organizations to see how they can help. Thank you for that. And I want to thank you both for joining me today. And thank you for the incredible work that you're doing in the field. And also for just putting focus back on this situation. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time and for having us today. Thank you for listening to the Immigration Advocates Network podcast. For more information, visit us at www.immigrationadvocates.org or sign up to become a member to receive more immigration advocate resources.